From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Record rainfall in parts of Colorado, but we know we can't count on all this moisture all the time. So today, the search for solutions to water woes continues along the Colorado River with parched. Okay, so this cup of water that you just poured for me two hours ago was salty ocean water from the Pacific Ocean. Okay, I'm going to try it. This is crazy. Then we meet a man known as the Weird Foothill Guy. He has finished another season of downhill skiing in places no one would think to, near shopping centers and in the suburbs. A gorilla approach he likens to surfing. You just go when the waves are good. You, you drop everything, you get in the car, you go, you do it for two hours, you come back. It's over. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. The stories, music, and statewide coverage wouldn't be possible without member support. In short, you make what you tune in for possible. If CPR adds value to your life, support it at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Record rainfall has soaked parts of Colorado this month. Yet it's not enough to make up for the bind we're in along the Colorado River because of drought, climate change, and overuse. CPR's podcast, Parched, is navigating the river, meeting the people who depend on it, with an eye on solutions. Here's host Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Salty air is filling up my nose. I'm about a thousand miles from the beginning of the Colorado River. I'm watching wave after wave hit the sand in Southern California. And there are surfers that are bobbing out in the big waves that you can hear and see roll in. There are seagulls and people walking along the sand. And as I turn around, there's this big industrial energy plant looking over the ocean. I'm in Huntington Beach, just south of Los Angeles. Some of this big industrial complex is older and parts aren't used to make energy anymore. This site could help this community secure a brand new source of water. And this water wouldn't dry up during drought. It wouldn't depend on how much snow there is in the mountains. And there's an endless supply here in California where climate change is threatening water security like it is across the Southwest. So the idea, knock some of this older infrastructure down and build a shiny high-tech desalination plant. It would suck in ocean water, take out all the grime, muck, and salt, and make it clean enough to drink. Because right now, parts of Southern California depend on the water that comes from high up in the Rocky Mountains. It travels all the way here, down the Colorado River and through canals and pipelines. Around a quarter of Southern California's drinking water comes from a river that starts in my home state, Colorado. It's so weird to me that Denver and LA use some of the same water. And so as the river and the reservoirs dry up, can the ocean provide a secure source of clean drinking water for these communities? 
What if these coastal cities and other places like Mexico or Arizona used more of the ocean and less of the Colorado River, leaving more water for the rest of the Southwest? I drive 30 minutes from the spot for a potential new desalination plant. I meet Oscar Rodriguez on a bench in a quiet neighborhood park. An ice cream truck makes its rounds. So I work for a nonprofit it's actually down the street. I've been helping people find affordable housing or building affordable housing for maybe five years now. Oscar is one of the people who could use desalinated water if it expanded along the Southern California coast. He was born in Los Angeles and moved to Huntington Beach when he was young, so his family grew up drinking Colorado River water. My mom would always try to conserve water any way we can, you know, like even if we had a issue with plumbing, she would always, you know, put like a bucket by the shower so that none of the water could go to waste and we could use that to water plants. He's gotten more involved in his community as an adult. He sees the ways water matters to the economy and got very interested in understanding the pluses and minuses of a desalination plant in his city. That's partly because his neighborhood has had to fight environmental injustices here before. Oscar lives in Oakview within Huntington Beach, and his old elementary school is right next to a city trash facility. He remembers the constant smell and all the seagulls that pecked at the garbage. We had this game, we would all run into the field and then that would cause the seagulls to fly over the school, which would mean, you know, people getting, you know, bird droppings. And so that was kind of like a joke that we had. But it took me going to college to actually learn that that was not okay. What wasn't okay was Oscar and the kids in his community growing up in those sorts of conditions. As he got older, Oscar started to fight the ways the site was operated. And eventually, his community won. The company running the dump spent millions to upgrade the facility. Oscar brings that experience and a deep desire to do what's right for his neighborhood to the question of where their water should come from. Because removing salt from seawater has the potential to affect people and wildlife nearby. I'm not opposed to desalination myself, but I think desalination should be part of the portfolio, right? Humans thirsty for fresh water have always had their eyes on the ocean. The problem, obviously, seawater is salty. Too salty to drink, too salty for most crops, so salty the water corrodes pipes and pumps and wood and metal and pretty much anything it touches. For thousands of years, people have worked to find ways to remove that salt and keep the fresh water. First, we tried distilling. People heated the seawater, then collected the vapor, which didn't have salt in it, then let the vapor condense into fresh water. People later invented special membranes that trap salty particles and let the water pass through. That's basically what modern-day desalination plants use, with the help of pumps and lots of power to push water through the membranes. No part of the globe has embraced desalination quite like the Middle East. Oil money is also making it possible for the governments to make better use of their land resources. Abu Dhabi has water for irrigation now, 
because of the millions it has spent to develop large desalination projects, converting seawater to fresh water. And because the sand here is fertile, water means that agriculture can become possible in the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula. Saudi Arabia went big on desalination early. They built their first plant in the 1930s. That investment has grown. It now gets 60% of its water from the ocean. And today, the country alone is responsible for creating about one out of every five gallons of desalinated water anywhere on the planet. A few decades after Saudi Arabia, the United States started to fund its own projects in the 1950s. At that time, parts of the South and Southwest were, this might sound familiar, gripped by a major drought. I'm sure that uh, before this decade is out, that we will see uh, more and more evidence of man's ability at an economic rate to secure fresh water from salt water. And when that day comes, then we will literally see uh, the uh, deserts bloom. The water technology showed such promise that President Kennedy hyped desalination and the economic potential of creating fresh water in this 1961 newsreel segment. Vice President Lyndon Johnson cutting the ribbon on the country's first desalination plant was worthy of a White House film crew. It is a matter of great interest uh, to me. It's a matter of the greatest interest to the vice president, who, living as he does in the state of Texas, has seen throughout his life how important it is uh, that uh, fresh water be secured. And it is for that reason that he is there today in Freeport participating in this dedication. So that uh, I now open this great effort in Freeport, Texas, and wish success to all who are involved. With the technology tested, states were ready for a technological freshwater revolution. Congress supplied funds to build five plants to show off how desalination could help different places. But then the rain came back. Plans were scrapped for a big plant near Los Angeles, and Congress didn't have a reason to fund such expensive projects. But since then, hundreds of plants have been built in the U.S. Now, the biggest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere is in San Diego County. It's about an hour down the coast from where Oscar lives. I'm just a few blocks away from the Pacific Ocean, and in front of me is the country's largest desalination plant. It sucks in ocean water, and a couple hours later makes it clean enough to drink. And I am about to take a tour of this place. My guide is Michelle Peters with Poseidon Water, which operates the plant. Michelle gets me set up in a fluorescent vest, safety goggles, and a hard hat. I keep wearing those at all times unless they're becoming their own safety issue. And feel free to take it off. <laughs> My headphones plus the hard hat is, you know, making yeah. it a little bit, but yeah, I think I got it. I cranked yeah. it real down. I'm going to have a headache by the end of this. San Diego County saw the need for this plant, starting with droughts in the 70s and 80s and 90s. 
water officials wanted to shore up their supplies by getting water from new sources. At one point, they were getting almost all of their water from non-local sources, like the Colorado River. And in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when significant drought hit and water taps and it needs to be either shut off completely or water restrictions came in place, San Diego was hit really hard. Um, especially because we relied so much on outside imported water sources. Then in 2000, the big drought hit, the one we're still in today. San Diego started working on this huge desalination plant. It came online in 2015. Since then, it's created more than 100 billion gallons of drinking water. And we've got more to provide. This plant, built to tap the ocean like a reservoir, is a whirring, humming tangle of pipes and pumps stacked from the floor to the ceiling. We head inside the reverse osmosis room, the room where all the membranes take the salt out. And it's loud in here. We've got like at least two stories worth of these horizontal, they kind of look like horizontal white pipes. And so essentially, this is the room where the salt was being removed. Yes, yes. So those membranes, the reverse osmosis membranes, they are fantastic at what they do. They're removing salts, molecules, essentially creating this beautiful foundation of high-quality water. It's quite remarkable, I will say. Jessica Jones, who's also with Poseidon Water, meets us on the tour. She wants me to try the final product of all this pumping, filtering, and more filtering. We get to taste the water. I was going to ask what it tastes like. Oh, it's great. On the roof of the desalination plant, Jessica hands me a cup of clear, crisp water. This water that we're going to drink right now, um, two hours ago, it was in the Pacific Ocean. So it takes two hours for the water to go from the ocean to right here, and then it takes about another hour to deliver the water inland to the aqueduct. Okay, so this cup of water that you just poured for me, two hours ago, was salty ocean water from the Pacific Ocean. Okay, I'm gonna try it. This is crazy. The plant now produces 10% of San Diego's drinking water and is their largest local source. It's helping to shift the county off of the Colorado River. Combined with other local water projects like recycling water and conservation, the county now uses less of the river. So if we were producing our own local water supply here, it would alleviate some of the strain on those inland dry states. Um, not just here in Southern California, but Arizona, Colorado, Utah. So we all need to do our part because it's just getting drier and hotter. Jessica has been living in California for more than 20 years. That whole time, she's been working on this desalination plant. Wow, so you've been part of this since, since the beginning? Since it was just an idea, yeah. What is it like seeing it you know, if you saw it on paper and now it's here in existence. I'm so proud. I joke that this is my first child. I mean, I really am so proud of what we've been able to do here. And I'm not out here as much right now. And so for me to come out here and visit, it's amazing. As the drought 
gets worse and communities here in Southern California like San Diego rely on the Colorado River, and we're seeing those big headlines and we're seeing Lake Mead and Lake Powell plummet, you know, do we need more plants like this one? Like, how do you feel about that? So we do. I mean, this local water supply is climate resilient, where it's not dependent on any rainfall or snowpack. And it is so important to be resilient and, and not reliant on other sources. I mean, we cannot survive without water. And it is a human right. And we need to be looking to the future and how we can provide it to not just Californians, but make sure that everyone in the West has a safe, reliable drinking water supply. As Poseidon was getting the San Diego plant going, the company made plans to build more plants in California, including in Huntington Beach, where Oscar lives, where we listened to the ocean waves at the start of this episode. Poseidon laid out a plan for the old industrial site to be transformed, to create billions of gallons of local, fresh drinking water. For the company, it's business, but it's also their vision for the Southwest survival in an age of less water. But the more Oscar learned about the idea, the less he liked it. When you look at it, that's pretty much the start of privatization of our water, which puts it at the hands of Wall Street investors, which in return, Wall Street doesn't care about whether it benefits the community. Their bottom line is to make a profit. Remember, Oscar thinks desalination can make sense, but he doesn't want a private company involved. He believes the public should own the plant and the water it produces. Oscar also sees a big, expensive plant to remove salt from the sea as a last resort. And when I say last resort, meaning that we're already doing everything in the books that will allow us to continue having a healthy supply of water. And the reality is we're not doing anything close to that. Those are only a couple of the reasons Oscar and others oppose big desalination plants. Oscar's learned they can be tricky to run in an environmentally friendly way. For every gallon of fresh water they make, desalination plants create more than a gallon of brine. That super salty concentrate has chemical residues, and it's toxic. Plants, like the one in San Diego, pump it back into the ocean. We don't know much about the impacts of that in specific places because there isn't enough research, but it's a big red flag for Oscar. Huntington Beach is known for, like, you know, for its surfing, Surf City USA, and all that was going to affect that. Poseidon says it lessens environmental harms by diluting the brine, mixing it with ocean water before putting it back into the sea. And they avoid a harmful tactic that some desal plants use, where heat helps remove the salt. That hotter discharge can hurt animals. But even with those safer steps, a study published in 2019 found that the San Diego plant made the water saltier than their permit allowed. And that plume of brine went much further into the ocean than it was supposed to. Poseidon disputes the findings. It says they don't line up with the results from monitoring the company is required to do by California and the EPA. 
The salty, toxic brine from desal plants is heavy, and it can settle on the ocean floor, where it can suffocate animals. And animals might struggle to live where the wastewater is released because of how quickly that water might move. The research didn't find a direct negative impact. But here's the thing. The study says if Poseidon had been dumping that brine into a pristine environment, there likely would have been an impact. But there was plenty of industrial waste already dumped in that area, so the ecosystem didn't show a major change. Desalination plants also use a ton of energy. The one I took a tour of uses the energy of a town with thousands of homes. That's a big carbon footprint. And that won't change unless renewables and battery storage can make desalination cleaner sometime in the future. These plants are also expensive to build, and all the energy they use means desalination is one of the most expensive ways to create fresh drinking water. That cost got passed on to customers in San Diego County when Poseidon's plant went online. The county's switch to desalination and other water sources has made water bills here some of the most expensive in the country. In Huntington Beach, where Oscar lives, Poseidon said the plant would raise home water bills by $3 to $6 a month. That may not sound like a lot, but it could really impact Oscar's neighborhood. They would say, oh, prices are going to increase $6, right? It's like a cup of Starbucks. But then a, a, lot of in, a lot of apartment units where people live, there's only one water meter. And so if the landlord's water rates increase, they're going to increase rents. And then it leads to displacement and so on. It's a, like a domino effect. Some studies found the price increase would likely be higher than what Poseidon said. Of course, drought means our water might get more expensive anyway, especially if our local utility needs to find a new source. But Oscar doesn't think desalination's downsides could be managed in the proposed Huntington Beach project. And he isn't alone. Okay, so we're going to move to general public comment. As you know, I uh, indicated that it was going to be reduced to one minute. Come on, let's go. This public hearing was held in 2022. Hi, I'm Adriana Maestas, and I'm an Orange County resident. I urge the Coastal Commission to deny the permit for this harmful project that never should have proceeded this far in the process. We don't need the desalinated water when we're not yet maximizing conservation. Please deny the permit. Listen to your staff. After more than 20 years of planning, millions of dollars spent on studies, surveys, and reports, scores of rowdy public hearings, California's Coastal Commission killed Poseidon's plan for the Huntington Beach desalination plant. Commissioner Amenzada? No. Amenzada? No. Commissioner Bochco? No. Bochco? No. Chair Brownsey? No. Brownsey, no. The vote is unanimous. I actually knew from a text message that I got that it was a unanimous, and I was like, okay, that is probably a joke. To me, it was like amazing just to see that change can actually happen, even if you have a small margin of hope, you know? I was shocked that it went the way it did. 
Yeah, Oscar and his group Oakview Comunidad helped kill the project. Our intention at Oakview was never to be like this environmental group, but it's just so happened that a lot of issues regarding our environment are centered around sort of gatekeeping low-income communities from being part of the process. Despite the rejection of the project, some California water planners and elected leaders still think their future depends on desalination. Last August, California Governor Gavin Newsom toured a plant that's under construction close to San Francisco. There, he laid out a proposal for why California should invest billions of dollars to boost the state's water supplies. He sees desalination as an important part of that plan. We're here to highlight uh, with renewed sense of urgency, truly the moment we're in. In the last few years, science and the data leads us to now understand that we will lose 10% of our water supply by 2040. The more we see projects developed like this, the less water that we will be utilizing from traditional conveyance. Less water, for example, in Southern California coming, third of which they receive from the Colorado River, uh, less water that we'll need to pull from the Colorado River. That's why these programs are complementary. This is not the solution to the water crisis, desalinization, but it is a significant part of our effort and our portfolio. So California is still signing off on new desalination projects, but they don't look like the big plant in San Diego County or the rejected one planned for Huntington Beach. They're smaller, which can allow them to do things a little differently. Just a few months after the California Coastal Commission rejected the Huntington Beach desalination project, it approved plans to build one 30 miles away along the same stretch of California coast. I went to see where and how this plant will be built to better understand what the future of desalination might look like. And so right now we are on the Pacific Coast Highway, right? Very famous highway that people are familiar with. Yes, this is PCH right here in, in the heart of Dana Point. So we are going to be turning left. We'll essentially head towards the Dana Point Harbor. Mark Cerna and Rick Shintaku from the South Coast Water District take me down to the beach to see where this future desalination plant will pull water from the ocean. It's winter and people are out here camping on the state beach. Rick explains how they'll drill pipes under the sand and under all of these campsites to make sure this coastal community has a little more protection in case climate change and drought don't let up. What does the Colorado River mean to, to, to folks here that live here, that recreate here, that camp here? What, is that, what does it mean for people? So the Colorado River in this overall area has been the lifeblood of, of our water supply. I mean, we've been... 100% dependent on our drinking water supply uh, from the Colorado River and the State Water Project for many years. We do realize we have the responsibility to offset or, or to reduce our take from the Colorado River as, as all of us are seeing the decline in that overall supply and it's very worrisome and we feel that as well down here. This Dana Point desalination plant has opponents but nothing like the large, organized, and vocal coalition that killed the plant in Huntington Beach. State regulators and many environmental and community groups agree 
The Dana Point project has most of what's on their desalination wish list. For example, they're building solar power for the new plant, which would supply about 15% of its energy. And the pipes will draw water from under the sandy seabed, which will fully prevent the problem of sucking in and killing marine life. The plant will also send its salty brine back into the ocean, where an already existing wastewater treatment plant does the same. A report from the California Coastal Commission says that will substantially reduce the brine's impact. These changes mean this proposed desalination project in Dana Point would be the first in California to meet the state's ocean protection standards. The proposed plant in Oscar's neighborhood didn't do the same. And the Dana Point plant would also be one-tenth the size of the rejected Huntington Beach one. At $140 million, it's also one-tenth the price tag. That means customers' bills won't be hit as hard. And the South Coast Water District says it will try to ease the burden on lower-income residents. But, Rick says, there'll still be some extra costs because we're running out of water. The the bottom line is all of the low-hanging fruit has been picked. There's no free or cheap water anymore. So, what did we learn? Desalination is already playing a role in a West with less water. And it could play an even bigger role. It can reduce big coastal towns' dependence on the Colorado River. Even Arizona is looking into the idea of building plants near the ocean to pump water inland. So we'll probably see more desalination in the future. Still, there's work to be done to make the plants more energy efficient and safe for marine life. And the higher price for treating ocean water means customers pay more. But the cost of water from the Colorado River is also going up. So the era of cheap water in the West could be coming to an end. The solutions we've explored so far to bring more water to the Southwest are expensive and take lots of time to build. Desalination and moving water from other rivers, like the Mississippi, are big ideas. Focusing on those means we don't have to ask ourselves hard questions about how to conserve water. So for the next few episodes, we're turning towards cities. How can cities and the people who live in them use less water? On the next episode of Parched, we'll visit a place known for its neon signs, poker tables, and huge fountains. I mean, there's a lot of bets and gambles going on here, but the house this time is saying, okay, we have to win this one. We have to win the gamble with water. And you know what? The house is doing what the house has always done. They're trying to win, and they're going to win this, I believe. What can we all learn about water conservation from a city famous for excess. That's next time on Parched. Michael Elizabeth Sackis hosts Parched, CPR's podcast that's searching for solutions to the Colorado River crisis. Follow this and all of the episodes wherever you get podcasts and always at CPR.org. Colorado is betting big on hydrogen as a green fuel of the future. 
but some experts worry it could accelerate climate change rather than slow it down. So Governor Jared Polis is set to sign a bill with the country's first legal definition of clean hydrogen. Here is CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash. Watch the puddles. It's uh, quite a bit of puddles here. It's a rare rainy day at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden. Keith Whipke leads its hydrogen research. And for him, the wet weather is actually a perfect place to start this story. So lots of fuel uh, from the sky coming down in the form of water. (laughs) We just need some wind and solar to uh, split it into hydrogen. This is the alchemy Whipke wants to perfect. We head inside to see it in action. In a bustling lab, a plastic tube carries water into a device called an electrolyzer. It's about the size of a smartphone, and it splits water into oxygen and hydrogen, which bubbles out another tube on the back. The unique thing about hydrogen is it's a molecule, and so you can move it around physically, you can store it, it just stays there, uh, and you can use it later. Basically, electricity can turn water into a zero-carbon fuel, a fuel that works a lot like gasoline or diesel. And that could be really helpful in places where big, heavy batteries don't make sense, like ships, long-haul trucks, or airplanes. But Whipke says there's one big challenge. To make it work, you really have to use renewable energy. If you made electricity from coal, for example, and then split water using that coal-fired electricity, that would not be a clean process. This is why many climate activists see a big risk in building a green hydrogen economy, mostly from scratch. Sure, the fuel burns clean, but if it's made with electricity from fossil fuels, it could become a new source of climate warming emissions. And that complication, it became the center of a recent debate at the Colorado State Capitol. The exciting HB 23, 1281, up next. In the last legislative session, Democratic lawmakers proposed a bill to set up a process to approve and incentivize clean hydrogen projects. Democratic State Representative Stephanie Vigil is a sponsor. The federal dollars that can be drawn down are incredibly valuable for Coloradans, and we want to make the most of them, both in terms of... In fact, it could bring more than half a billion dollars of federal funding to Colorado, not to mention new jobs and private investment. But environmental groups objected, saying the plan didn't ensure hydrogen would come from renewable energy. And lawmakers heard those concerns. Despite very fierce industry lobbying, they put a great stake in the ground. This is Rachel Fakhry. She leads environmental advocacy around new technologies for the Natural Resources Defense Council. And she says Colorado added a critical definition of green hydrogen, something she'd love to see mirrored at a federal level around upcoming rebates from President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. The the fight is about this electricity that is going to be powering electrolyzers. What sort of guardrails are are we going to put around it? To win the most federal funding, Fakhry says electrolyzers should run off new clean energy projects, not existing wind and solar needed for homes and businesses. And when that energy isn't available, those electrolyzers should be switched off, so they're not relying on fossil fuel power plants. Meanwhile, hydrogen companies warned that could kneecap a young industry. So they've kind of lost the big picture of decarbonization by focusing on these uh, these narrow items. Frank Wolock leads the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association. It represents automakers, oil and gas operators, and other companies hoping to benefit from hydrogen. 
to the larger issue, just how do we get community adoption of more and more renewable resources as fast as possible so that electrons can flow to multiple uses, including hydrogen. Basically, he says hydrogen should be treated like any other climate solution that relies on lots of electricity, like, say, heat pumps for your home or electric cars. That makes some sense to Will Tour, the director of the Colorado Energy Office and the lead architect of many of its climate policies. And we do think it's important to have some flexibility in the, in the early days of deployment to allow the industry to grow, to help drive down costs and allow you to deploy at a really large scale. That's why Colorado's toughest regulations don't kick in until 2028, or if the industry reaches a certain size. And Tour hopes the federal government also gives businesses time to make a truly clean alternative to fossil fuels. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Canadian wildfires mean the Front Range and the Plains are choked with smoke, a time to limit outdoor activity. But we have our eyes on clearer days when you might jump on a bicycle, or maybe not, because you're intimidated, turned off, or afraid. If you are interested in biking but confused by bike culture, let us know and send us your questions. Our email is coloradomatters at cpr.org, or leave us a message at 303-871-9191, extension 4480. Again, the email address is coloradomatters at cpr.org, and our main number, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. After a break, suburban skiing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Listen, that thing... The state legislative session? It's over. Lawmakers have wrapped up their work. Housing and taxes. Progressive policies and moderate politics. And so much more. We're up for debate this year. And we're here to explain what did and didn't get done. And look behind the curtain to see why that happened. In a new episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. At CPR.org and wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He calls himself the Weird Foothill Guy. Alex Kaufman of Golden is a downhill skier. But rather than sit in ski traffic, he skis suburbs and switchbacks. Think the foothills behind a grocery store over his lunch hour. Kaufman has wrapped up his season with 74 backyard trips, covering 306 miles and 104,000 vertical feet. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Tell us about your last run this go-round, will you? Oh, geez. It was uh, mid-May when I think I'm putting the fork in it here. We had just gotten a bunch of rain here in the metro area, uh, inches and inches of it. But above 10,000 feet, there was 18 to 24 inches of snow in one of the places that I I frequent early and late season. Went up there and skied that glop, about 1,500 vertical feet of it. Then felt good about calling it a season. (laughs) You skied that glop is how you're describing the precipitation, what was on the ground there. Can you give us this location or give us a sense for the kind of terrain it is and where it is? Yeah, it's above Evergreen. Above Evergreen. Yeah. Okay. That's about as far as I'm willing to travel. Golden is home for you. Correct. And you keep a spreadsheet of your outings, which I perused. Uh, Indeed, one location was labeled King Supers and another Home Depot. Will you describe those spots? 
Yeah, I just kind of give them names so that I can remember what I'm talking about. And, and I have a few people who frequent with me once in a while, and we all just kind of know where these spots are. And I usually name them after whatever, you know, big box store they happen to be closest to. Uh-huh. So that, you know, King Supers is about five, six minutes from a King Supers. The Home Depot spot is maybe 400 yards from a Home Depot. These are closer at hand, I imagine, than the Evergreen Run you did to end the season then? Correct. What is the closest you've skied to your own home? Uh, I have a spot on that sheet you'll see called Mountain Neighborhood. That's, you know, in Arvada and is on a town park, I guess. And, you know, each lap's about 100 vertical feet. Then I can go there for about an hour and get about 1,000 vertical feet huh. on these weird skis that I use that make it possible. And then, you know, be right back at the desk. I, Alex, I desperately want to make Ski Arvada t-shirts just to see what people's reactions will be. How did this idea of hyper-local skiing occur to you in the first place? Uh, it really just became possible because of this weird niche discontinued product that I ski upon. And they're short, fat, plastic, edgeless skis with scales on the bottom that allow me to go up and down and up and down and up and down without ever, ever having to put on skins or really do much preparation of gear of any type. Oh. And so they really make possible the skiing and an enjoyable factor of small vertical. Are these skis anyone could get? Uh, they are discontinued. They're very hard to find. There is a black market for them. Wow. And um, I have a few pair that will hopefully get me until my knees stop working. <laughs> um, but other people are, you know, buying and selling them on Facebook and Craigslist Marketplace throughout the year. I think about 6,000 exist in the world, but they stopped being produced in 2020. On social media, you shared some of what you have learned doing this. Uh, will you share that with us now? Yeah, I mean, I really needed to put skiing in a new box in order to keep doing it. You know, I have two kids in elementary and middle school. I have a job that keeps me near the desk, but gives me short windows of time that Mm -hmm. I can use. But battling I-70 on the weekends, just not really a type of skiing that was going to allow me to keep doing it. And so this piece of equipment and just trial and error, you know, showed me that I could turn skiing into kind of like going to the gym. I could do it before work. I could do it lunch break. I could do it in the evening. I mean, sometimes I have coached an away soccer game in Greeley in the morning, taken my kids to birthday parties in the middle of the day, and then gone skiing in the afternoon and been home for dinner. And, you know, that's just not really something that anybody else in Denver can do. So I just kind of learned that there is this other option of skiing that's much simpler and requires less preparation, less time, less risk. And um, if you're willing to kind of chase the weather and get creative, it can happen. But it's really difficult without this kind of weird niche ski that I've got. And and so you earned this nickname, the weird foothill guy. You, you say that it might be safer doing this kind of hyper-local skiing on the front range. But are you ever trespassing? Do you ever risk overshooting a mark and hurling into a suburb or a street? Um, there are definite risks. So my risks are different though. I mean, I'm not really an avalanche terrain ever. I do have risk of, you know, mountain lion. I have risk of coming upon an, a dead body that somebody got rid of because I'm near roads. I'm also near people who are firing guns a lot. So wait, 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 H- have you seen a dead body? No, 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 no. Okay. But, but that's but the just, risk. I'm, I'm in weird locations that are near roads in areas that are close to the city And so I come upon different challenges. Barbed Uh wire, I come upon fairly often. And if I don't see it, that could be a problem. People who like to do target practice and shooting in various areas of the National Forest that are near the city, things like that. I I hear 
firing often. I have a little orange handkerchief that I ski with all the time um, just for visibility, yeah. whether it's hunting season or not. The notion of trespassing, like how do you know when you're on public versus private property? Um, signs, first of all. Yeah. Um, and I really you know, go out of my way not to trespass. I am most of the time in either a Denver Mountain Park, a city park, uh, Jefferson County open space, or National Forest. When someone sees you in a mountain park that's not Winter Park, right? <laughs> right? Or Mary Jane, what is their reaction? Uh, it's odd. Um, they usually will kind of look at my skis and maybe they'll see me drop down all of a sudden and just disappear. And then they'll see me again because I'm just looping that spot. And then they'll say, you know, what are those? And I'll explain, oh, they're plastic. They're kind of halfway between snowshoes and skis. They're discontinued, but they allow me to ski the foothills where we are. So they're usually walking dogs. You know, that's who I come across the most. They're curious. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're curious. Sometimes they're on regular cross-country skis, uh-huh. and they're, you know, immediately intrigued by, like, well, wait, that's a whole different thing you could do here, but you need to have those. And they say, where can I get those? And I say, good luck. sorry. You sometimes ski with others, you've mentioned. Is there a part of you that wants more people to do this, or is the fact that it's unique what drives you, and do you want to maybe keep it special? Uh, definitely both. So I have, you know, a bit of a demo fleet. So I have numerous pairs of these skis mounted up. I have 12 pairs of the boots that you need to do it. And I invite people to come with me often. Um, Oh, wait. So these special skis also require special boots? Special boots, special bindings. They're not special. They're cheap. They're antiques. So it's a 30-year-old Telemark binding and a 30-year-old Telemark boot that I have accumulated like a bowling shoe fleet in my garage. (laughs) And I invite people to come. The challenge with this is that People like to plan skiing. Again, it's in that primary industrial box. They like to plan it days in advance, and that's not how this works. Yeah, you got to be nimble. Right. This is like surfing, and you just go when the waves are good. You, you drop everything, you get in the car, you go, you do it for two hours, you come back. It's over. And so other people can't really plan around that. They're also not great at, like, let's wake up at 4.30. Let's get there at 6 when sun comes up. Let's ski till 8. Let's be back at 9. They're not great at that, and they're not great on just playing the weather. They want to be, oh, I want to go next weekend. Are you going next weekend? I'll say, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll decide that morning. I might be going in two minutes. And then they'll say, and where are you going? And I say, I don't know. I'm operating in an elevation profile between 5,000 and 10,500 feet. And every day when I wake up, I'm judging the weather. I'm judging the snow. I'm judging the temperature. I'm judging the freezing level. I'm judging the angle of the sun to decide where is this going to work. I'm also, oh, is it a Saturday? Do I need to avoid 70? Because I don't I don't even want to deal with one exit of traffic. Uh-huh. Um, I have to think that these areas, well, they're not groomed, obviously. Right. What is the strangest thing you've skied over? In other words, there has to be stuff under the snow sometimes. Yes. The discovery of finding weird stuff in the forest is definitely, like, keeps me coming back. Oh. You know, and most of the time that's abandoned mining equipment. I am skiing in the areas that used to be where people mined for everything around here in the foothills just outside of of the plains. So I see and have found all sorts of abandoned everything. I have reached out to, you know, all the search and rescues in Gilpin, Clear Creek, and Jefferson County, because there's been some times when they've lost people and they haven't been able to find them before they passed away, unfortunately, um, because they're in these areas where people can't get around in the winter. But I've skied a lot of these areas, and so I'm kind of now on on their phone call list for if we lose somebody in the winter up here. Look out. You know, I can just be up there. I know that terrain already, and I can get around on these things up down in ways that are better than snowshoes, better than snowmobiles. I don't need trails. I'm used to breaking trail. Are you headed out again next winter? Yeah. um, I'm, I'm done with the other part, the other style of skiing. Yeah. 
I don't think I could go back. I get so much kind of mental health and physical health benefits from obviously hiking up these mountains constantly, but just getting out, you know, for short periods of time every day, 90 minutes out of the house, away from the desk in the forest. You know, I come home and I say to my wife, I'm like, I had another skiing idea. It's like taking a 90 minute shower where you're alone with your thoughts in the forest and you're not looking at your phone and no one's, you know, you're not on your computer and all the big problems that I have in life or small problems I solve when I'm out there skiing for an hour and a half. And I come home and I tell my wife, I'm all excited. She's like, oh, God, another one. Thanks so much, Alex. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Ryan. Skier Alex Kaufman, who calls himself the weird foothill guy, lives in Golden. He's just wrapped up his weird season. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News and KRCC. Let's go outside.